Okay. Where to start? There's so many layers in John's account of Jesus and the man born blind. All four Gospels contain stories of Jesus healing the blind, but in the synoptics, these are merely tales of healing miracles. Only John's Gospel puts in so much detail, piles so much meaning and symbolism onto this particular act of healing. No doubt, this story spoke especially to John's own community, embroiled as it was in disputes about the place of Jews and non-Jews in the Christian community. It also speaks directly to the theme that John lays out at the beginning of his gospel, that the light was coming into the world, and although he created the world, the world did not know him. His own people did not receive him. So in John's account, this particular act of healing is pivotal. And John uses it to lay out clearly, at least clearly for his own community, an <clears throat> argument about faith and understanding. First, he deals with a naughty theological question. In Genesis, it says that the sins of the parents will be visited on the children through multiple generations. While Elisha says that each person's sin and the afflictions that go with it belong to that person alone. Depending on who you followed, birth defects were therefore either uh, caused by the sins of your ancestors or by your own sins committed in the womb before birth. You might dismiss both of those ideas as silly, as Jesus clearly does, but you might also have noticed that at the moment there's a great deal of conversation, not to mention insinuation, about who gets the blame for the current epidemic country where the first cases were found, one or more governments for their actions or inactions, scientists or politicians for supposed infamy, and of course God using disease as a tool to punish have all been blamed. In the number of, as the number of cases grows in this country, we'll also start to hear blame being laid upon individual uh, uh, laid for individual infections. Jesus, as is evident from this lesson, is having none of any of that. Who's to blame is not just the wrong question, it represents a misunderstanding of God and the world we live in. And Jesus makes an even more troubling assertion that the man born blind was born so that the glory of God might be revealed. Jesus seems to be saying that God made the man blind so that God could then make a show of restoring his sight. That's a very troubling idea about God, unless you decide that Jesus is talking about the man's spiritual blindness. But even then, the use of physical disability as a metaphor is troubling. Neither Jesus nor anyone else in Scripture ever uses disability as a metaphor in a positive way. I'm going to suggest that being troubled by all of that is a good thing. That in a culture far more brutal and insensitive than ours, people casually thought of physical infirmities as metaphors and even symptoms of spiritual ones. But we should endeavor to do better and at least think twice when we say or sing things like, I was blind, but now I see. And if we, for the moment, can carry our unease with the blindness metaphor 
likely enough that we can keep looking at the story for what else it might teach us. We discover that the healing of the blind man only sets the stage for the heart of the story, which is indeed about a spiritual malady, but one that only superficially resembles blindness. Spiritual obtuseness, spiritual obstinacy, spiritual self-righteousness might better describe the attitude of the community leaders who repeatedly question the man and his family. The worldview that they inhabit is thoroughly, <coughs> excuse me, the worldview that they inhabit so thoroughly is a fortress so strongly constructed that it is a dwelling place without windows. There are at least three so-called facts, convictions strongly held that make the religious leaders in the story doubt the man's account of recovered sight. First, they would say, God and God's servants do not act on the Sabbath. Second, God does not listen to the pleas of the sinful. Third, Jesus is not one of the religious insiders, the spiritual elite, and therefore he could not possibly have done this thing. So they jump to the obvious conclusion, this man who can see is not the same guy who was blind. The Pharisees attempt to public, publicly discredit the man, and thus Jesus, by proving that the man is an imposter, fail. But their worldview is strong. So they then move on to the next necessary conclusion, that the healing itself is in some way sinful, and therefore both healer and healed must be involved in evil. Then, to his credit, continues to stick to the facts of the case. I don't know about sin. I just know that I was blind and now I see. I don't know about Jesus. I just know that I was blind and now I see. I don't know about breaking the Sabbath laws. I just know that I was blind and now I see. But those simple statements of fact are not enough to break open a worldview that cannot contain them. And so the leaders continue to denounce and conspire against Jesus in order to uphold their own understanding of the truth. Let us not be too smug or self-satisfied that we are not like those Pharisees. We all have our own sheltering, comforting worldviews that we dwell in, and none of them reflect the world the way it truly is. And we cling to those shelters for a while when they are battered by contrary information whether we're talking about our view of our own virtues, vices, or talents, or those of our children, or our ideas about the relative value and importance of our family, community, nation, or culture, or the character of a friend or a political leader, or the reality of climate change. All of the opinions that make up the structure of our sheltering worldview are safe to some extent from the assault of contradictory information. We assume at first that our heroes and our loved ones are falsely accused or have reasons as yet unrevealed for what they have done. Confirmation bias, the tendency to accept bad information that confirms our beliefs and reject good information that contradicts them is a strong self-reinforcing habit of the human brain. So, we prop up our internal worldview houses for as long as we can, lest until eventually the assault of facts makes them too weak to stand. The good news, I guess, although it never feels that way when our illusions are finally shattered, 
is that out of the rubble of our old worldview and of the truth that has battered its way into our lives, we build new worldviews that are, shall we say, a little bit less untrue. This is the point at which we find the once blind man as we near the end of the story. Now, I said earlier that it was to his credit that he stuck to the facts in the face of the barrage of attacks on his veracity and character, but I don't really believe that. His worldview was certainly at least as assaulted by what had happened to him as was the worldview of the Pharisees. God had impinged on his life in an extraordinary and unprecedented way, but against the blazing light of God's involvement in his life, he persists, at least for a while, in sheltering under his shabby little tent of facts. I don't know anything about whether Jesus is a sinner. I just know that I was blind and now I see. Fortunately for the man, Jesus knows that the healing moment has only just now arrived for this man. And he goes to the man whose new sight has laid him open to new truth. And he offers him the insight that the Pharisees are steadfastly refusing to see. But the man is now face to face with the living God. And many people have had similar encounters with God, experiences that defied expectations and so shattered their worldviews that the presence of God was unmistakable. And the power of the experience led to real, deep, and permanent changes of life and heart. Scripture tells us about a number of these encounters. The lives of the saints offer more. But you or someone you know may well have met God in a similarly shattering way. These experiences are remarkable, but they're nothing to boast of, for they show as much as anything that those exper who experienced them were so stubborn in their worldview that God had to use a battering ram to break down the walls. Others of us have more permeable worldviews and the light of God gets in through the cracks and chinks or under the flaps of our tents, resulting in a life story marked by undramatic movement forward and backward instead of shattering conversion experiences. This too is nothing to boast about. Our worldviews, whether demolished and rebuilt or continually remodeled, are still pretty shabby compared to the place where God is inviting us to dwell. Whatever kind of shelter your spirit dwells in, Lent is a perfect time to pay attention to how God is trying to get in. It's a nagging sense of unease suggests that you are moving toward change. Are there signs that you've been ignoring? Signs of the truth that sustains your life, an idea about who you are or about someone you admire or dislike, is being challenged by your experience. There's something about life that just isn't working right now. Our forced sequestration may be the ideal time to carve out some room in your life for personal reflection or even conversation with someone you trust about what your once comfortable worldview is being challenged to become right now. God is constantly knocking at the doors, the windows, the walls, of the protective worldviews that we build for ourselves. Where is God knocking for you right now? What are you going to do when you finally answer that knocking? And you will, in the end, answer because God is nothing if not persistent.
Will you invite God in? Or better still, will you accept God's invitation to open the door and step outside into the light? Will you leave the house of your own making? Well, in the house of the Lord.